podcast. I'm Phil Freeman, and in this episode, I'll be talking to percussionist and band leader Adam Rudolph. Before I start the introduction proper, though, I have an announcement to make. The label side of Burning Ambulance has just released two amazing CDs. The first is the self-titled debut by Breath of Air, which is a new trio featuring guitarist Brandon Ross, who was on this podcast two episodes ago, and violinist Charles Burnham and drummer Warren Benbow. Both of those two men were members of James Blood Almer's Odyssey Trio, and Brandon, of course, is a member of Harriet Tubman. But Breath of Air doesn't sound anything like either of those two groups. They sound like nothing I've ever heard before, frankly. It's a kind of psychedelic drone rock mixed with black string band music that you've just got to listen to for yourself. The other CD is Inner Voices by Jose Lancaster. Jose is a Portuguese saxophonist who's a member of a bunch of groups, but this is a genuinely unique and unprecedented solo release on which he overdubs multiple horn lines harmonizing with himself and also interacting with live electronics played by this guy Ari who produced the record with him. If I had to compare it to anything, I'd say it's like the World Saxophone Quartet produced by Adrian Sherwood. It's amazing music, and again, it sounds like nothing else out there. That's what we strive for at Burning Ambulance Music, is to give the world sounds they've never heard before, whether it's the Indonesian ritual drone metal duo Senyala, or saxophonist Evo Perlman in duo with trumpeter Nate Woolley, or pianist Matthew Shipp and drummer Whit Dickey, or cornet player Graham Haynes with electronic musicians Submerged. We release new music in the most literal sense. And you can get our CDs, which, by the way, are beautiful physical objects as well, packaged in heavy cardboard gatefold mini LP-style sleeves. We don't bullshit around with jewel cases or digipacks. We give you something truly special for your money, and you can buy them direct from us at the Burning Ambulance Music page on bandcamp.com. So pause this podcast or just open up a new browser tab and go there now and listen to these amazing releases and buy them. We only put out a couple of records a year because if we're going to put something out, it's going to be incredible. So give these artists your money. Now, let's get back to the subject at hand. I have said two things all season long. The first is that we're going to be exploring a single topic for 10 episodes, and that topic is fusion. But the second thing I've been saying for six episodes already, this is number seven out of 10, is that what I mean when I say the word fusion is a state of mind, not a style or a genre. It's not what you play, it's how you approach music making. In previous episodes, we've talked about what people commonly understand as fusion, which drummer Lenny White, who appeared in episode two of this series, prefers to call jazz rock. That's the version that starts with Miles Davis's Bitches Brew and Tony Williams' Lifetime, and quickly branches out with Mahavishnu Orchestra and Return to Forever and Weather Report. But as we've gone on, We've expanded the conversation to include adventurous funk and R&B fusion, which includes everything from P-Funk and Earth, Wind & Fire and the Ohio Players, and wow, do the Ohio Players deserve a place in the fusion conversation that they are very rarely granted, to Donald Byrd and Freddie Hubbard and especially George Duke. Adam Rudolph is a fusion artist in about as broad a sense as you can imagine. He's been a percussionist for close to 50 years and should be much better known than he is. He's been around since the early 70s and has worked with everyone. Yusuf Latif, Fred Anderson, Don Cherry, Roscoe Mitchell, Pharaoh Sanders, Sam Rivers, Wadada Leo Smith, Herbie Hancock, Malawi, Fodai Musa Soso, Hassan Hakmoon, John Hassel, He's part of the Bill Laswell company of players, too, so he's on a zillion records through that connection. Plus, he leads two main groups of his own, Moving Pictures and the Go Organic Orchestra, which have made many, many albums and even crossed over with each other a time or two. 
Adam and I had a really fascinating conversation over the course of two phone calls. The impetus was symphonic tone poem for Brother Yusuf, a collaboration between him and Reed's player Benny Malpin that's just been released. Benny Malpin, of course, is a legend on his own. He played on Bitches Brew and On the Corner. He was a member of Marion Brown's group in the 60s. He was in Wandishi and the Headhunters with Herbie Hancock. He played with Woody Shaw and his own album from 1974, The Jewel in the Lotus, is an absolutely brilliant record that blends spiritual jazz with almost new age ambient music. There's really no other record like it. If you've never heard it, it's a must hear. So obviously Rudolph and I talk about Malpin, whom he's worked with off and on for decades, but we also talk about Laswell and about Latif and about the whole idea of world music and fusion as creative mindset that I've been discussing with every artist I've interviewed for the podcast this year. We talk a lot about the philosophy that goes into bringing together musicians from all sorts of traditions from all over the globe and finding ways to make their ideas flow together. That's what he does with Go Organic Orchestra, the membership of which is completely open and the music of which is created through spontaneous conduction. So he was really the ideal person to talk about all this stuff with. I think you'll come away from this episode with a lot to think about. I know I did, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. All the music you'll hear, by the way, comes from Symphonic Tone Poem for Brother Yusuf. So there's an excerpt from that coming right up, and after that, you'll hear my interview with Adam Rudolph. So I want to ask, basically I wanted to find out a little bit more about you and kind of, and your sort of whole history. So, I mean, your, the first recording that I found with, of you was with Malawi in 1974, I think, on Strata East. So tell me a little bit about that record. What were you? Well, good, good research. All right. (laughs) Not everybody knows that. Okay. The only thing I would correct you is that it's actually was on Strata Records which from which was oh, the Detroit, Detroit based label. right okay right and and strata east came out of that charles moore and kenny cox who started strata actually um taught stanley cowell sort of how to put together a label and so that's why there's strata and then strata east and not like strata and then strata west right so yeah so they started that first so I'll just try and make it brief. I when I was, um, I think I made that record with Malawi. I was 17. I had been playing with him in Chicago since I was 16, and Malawi was one of the great, uh, you know, uh, woodwind players, uh, kind of straddling from the great tenor saxophone tradition of Chicago, and he sort of straddled the generation of, um, you know, younger than Johnny Griffin. But you know, older than um, uh, you know, Calaprusha and um, uh, the AAC, a lot of the AACM people. Okay, know? okay. So I started playing with them at a really young age, and um, I mean, a lot of great people played with them: Jerome Cooper and Jack DeJohnette and Billy Brimfield. He was one of those people. Who, and um, so um, the way the record date came together was I started playing a lot in Detroit, also. And that's how I met Charles Moore and Kenny Cox. And by the way, they just recently released on Strata a new update. Um, that guy, 180 Degrees, I think Amir, is, is releasing a lot of Strata stuff that never got released. And they just released The Black Hole, which is a concert I did with the contemporary jazz quintet. Yeah, I um, heard that record. Yeah, that was really yeah. good. Yeah. Well, I'm so I'm 17 that I think was in August or July. And then we made the record with Malawi in September. 
And I actually connected Malawi with Strata. Um, I said, yeah, I'm playing with this great sax player. And they were like, okay, we're going to record them. So they came and recorded them, recorded, recorded that record. Um, it's through Malawi that I met Fred Anderson because he and Fred were very close. And Fred used to come and sit in with us when I played with the Malawi a lot. And then I started playing with Fred around that same, you know, 74. Um, and then I did, I played on Fred's first domestic studio recording. Um, I think it's called The Missing Link on right. NASA, yeah. which we did in 79. And then, you know, my other recorded thing was in 1978, I produced um, and played on the Mendingo Griot Society record, which was, um, you know, I think for the time was kind of the first, I mean, you, I guess your article's about fusion, and I would call that one of the first sort of African traditional fusions with American musicians. I mean, of course, Randy Weston and, you know, people had been doing things mm-hmm. prior to that, but kind of really playing the music of the African. And there was Guy Warren, you probably know about. Yeah, but, yeah. But this was a pretty innovative record. I mean, sort of built around chora music. Now, there's a zillion bands that do that, but we were kind of the first, I think. Yeah. Yeah, tell me about that. That actually leads me to... Um something that I also spotted, which was this Jazz Africa project that you were part of with Herbie Hancock and Hamid Drake and a bunch of other people, uh, like in the late 80s, 87, 88. What was the story with that? Was that like a one-off concert? Yeah, it was. I mean, basically that was, um, so the third, the first two Mandingo Griot Society records I produced, the third one we did for Celluloid that Bill Laswell produced. Mm -hmm. And so Bill... Watosita and Bill connected Suso with Herbie and then Herbie I, I'm not sure the genesis of how that project started but it was a television show and um, so it was the whole Mandingo Griot Society band really basically Okay. Um, which was Hamid and Joe Thomas and Abdul Hakim at that time and myself plus Herbie Hancock plus I think Armando Parazzo was playing yeah um also so but it was basically the mendingo real society band plus herbie hancock you know mm-hmm. um yeah and uh so that's how that so that was a one-off yeah it was a one concert uh you know television thing that subsequently got released um yeah 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 and that was in the early 80s was when you kind of got drawn into the the bill laswell verse sort of well, I don't know. Yeah, I think I don't remember when we recorded Watosita, but that's when I met Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, he came out to produce that record in Chicago. Maybe I'm thinking like '81 somehow seems to be it, but uh-huh. you can check the date of that record. That's how I met Bill. Um, I didn't get to really know him, or now I work with him since I moved here. You know, he has a studio in Orange, and um, I've done. I don't know, I think I've recorded and mixed maybe 20, 25 records of my own there, and then I play on a ton of his sessions mm-hmm. also. So it's really great to have this wonderful studio and great relationship with him um, the last, since I moved here to Maplewood, you know. I actually spoke to Bernard Fowler a while ago, and he told me that, you know, Laswell or Laswell's people would just kind of call him every once in a while, be like, hey, we're doing a session on Thursday, come on by, you know, and he would show up not knowing who it was going to be, and it might be like, you know, Herbie Hancock, it might be Yoko Ono, it might be whoever, you know, and he would just do backing vocals or do whatever was required of him. Is that sort of the same role that you play like did, did yeah you bill just... calls me i live down you know like i said i'm 10 minutes away you know from the studio 15 so i help him out and like i said he lets me i record and mix there uh all the time like i said the last oh, man i don't know 20 years i've done you know like i said i've done so many records there so yeah i mean I, i'll give you like the other day he you know so i never know what it is he doesn't really say a lot sometimes he does Sometimes he doesn't, but I was the other day. His last, I played on his most recent release, um, and it was just funny. I was playing, I think it was Chad Wackerman, I think was playing drums, but it was you know, and I'm playing, I'm overdubbing, and and all of a sudden the whole band drops out, and just the drums are laying down a group, 
and this piano solo starts. And so I'm kind of like, wow, man, this piano player is, and he didn't say it was going to happen, you know, so I'm just listening and this guy can really play, man. And I was influenced by Herbie and it's just him and the drums that I'm, so I'm kind of going to open up on the congas instead of playing a groove. I'm kind of opening up and dialoguing with the piano player. And then I said, and then I realized about halfway through, I said, man, that's got to be Herbie. And it was, you know, Herbie, <laughs> uh, some tracks that Herbie Hancock had done. And then also I think I did another track and I'm like, oh, I know that sax player. And it was Pharaoh Sanders, um, you know, who I'd worked with for years. And maybe you heard the record I did with Pharaoh and Hamid and I, mm-hmm. um, that spirit trick. So I reckon, of course, his sound is easy to recognize. So you never know what Bill, you know, I mean, I've done all kinds of, things with him i mean a japanese opera singer and uh and uh with the funk and you know ethiopian young rock bands all kinds of stuff so whatever whatever he needs i'd like to help him out and then he helps me out by keeping me um in touch you know yeah uh, with losing the studio i mean that's exactly what i've been sort of talking about in all the various interviews that i've been doing this year is you know fusion not in the return to forever Mahavishnu weather report sense, but fusion as like a mindset, which is sort of yeah. what Bill calls collision music, you know, where you just take things uh, that don't necessarily work together and figure out what they have in common and make it, you know, and make it into something new, you know? Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, it's, um, you know, my publishing company is called Migrations Music, and uh, to me, you know, it's, 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 I mean, you know, coming from, let's say the African-American so-called jazz, I mean, that's like, that's a fusion music itself. I would, I, you know, I call it syncretic music. I mean, where it's, you know, a, several cultural elements. Um, and in, in some ways, it's almost like all music is like that in the sense that the, you know, the creative inspiration and curiosity that um, goes along with being a musician is, um, at least for me, is you're always interested in what other people are doing, you know? So, you know, you, um, uh, like, for example, I work with Hassan Hakmoon and, right, we did, we did kind of what would be called the first fusion Ganawa record. I don't know if you know that record, The Gift of the Ganawa, mm. but we did that in 1988. So nobody had really done, that I know of, did that kind of record of, I guess you could call it a fusion. But, you know, in another way, it's it's was um, already syncretic. I mean, the Ganawa, you know, people were traveling across the Sahara for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they would, you know, end up in northern Nigeria, and then maybe you're there, and you get married, and you hear that music, and you come back, and, and then you're hearing the music in Morocco, the Berber, the Alas, you know, I mean, and so on and so forth. In other words, and then I'm playing congas on the record with the ganawa and of course the 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 moroccans were in spain for 700 years also so you know their their music is already part of the syncretic qualities of cuba so i guess i'm saying in one way you know fusion is a very particular thing but in another way it's almost like um the imperative of you know the impulse in the first place Exactly. In other words, curiosity and studiousness, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you uh, in the late '80s was when you started working with Youssef Latif, right? So, mm-hmm. talk to me about how that creative relationship got started, because you two worked together for a long time. So, I mean, kind of talk to me about that, because he he has that same sort of mindset, I think, of just taking things well, you... from you know all over and combine, you know, and seeing what can be done with them. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that's a certain open-mindedness. And in a way, Yusuf could be almost called like the first quote, world music, which is also sort of a funny term because we all live in the world. But, uh-huh. you know, in, in the middle 50s, he started, he started incorporating Middle Eastern instruments and scales and rhythms into his music, right? And, um, you know, he said he was, you know, he wanted to expand his palate and, and uh, learn everything about all kinds of music and not have limitations. You know, I mean, fusion sort of implies 
crossing boundaries or or even not accepting the illusion that there's boundaries that exist, right? Mm-hmm. So it was. I met Yusuf. I mean, to sort of link it all together with the Detroit story. So my second school, my first school was Chicago, I would say, with musicians like Malawi and Fred Anderson. And my other school I went to was Detroit, working with Charles Moore and Kenny Cox, you know, as a teenager and young man. Um, and they, they mentored me. I mean, this music is an oral tradition, at least before it moved into schools. So the older musicians, you know, you learn, they, you learn from being around them. So the Detroit connection was then Charles Moore, I moved to California and Venice, Los Angeles. And that's, by the way, I, you know, we do want to talk about Benny Maupin, I guess. So, Mm. but that's where um, Charles Moore and Ralph Jones and Federico Ramos and I started a group called Eternal Wind. And I don't know if you know those three records we did on Flying Fish. Um, but that's, in terms of fusion, I would say that's one of the most innovative and advanced music. Uh, do you know any of those records? I don't. I've seen them, but I'm not, uh, I'm not familiar with them. Yeah, I mean, you'll be shocked. If you, put, if you go to that first Eternal Wind record, which was maybe 1982, and realize that that was recorded in 1982, um, <laughs> Really, I mean, it was, it was, and so what happened was Yusuf had moved, had been living in Nigeria for four years, teaching at Amadou Bello University in Zaria. And when he came back, he, I guess he was feeling like he wasn't really going to have a group anymore. He had sort of moved into another musical realm. But then he heard, and I'm not sure how, but he heard one of the Eternal Wind records and was really interested. So when he got invited to do a concert at Symphony Space in 1988, I was living in Don Cherry's loft at that time in Long Island City. Mm-hmm. Uh, he invited Eternal Wind to do that concert with him, his first concert since he'd been back from Nigeria. And Cecil McBee also played bass with us. Oh, nice. So that was the beginning of our relationship, and we worked, we toured with him with Eternal Wind, and then he and I, I mean, that's a whole long history that... I could send you a uh, more about it, but we worked together in large ensemble collaboration uh, with my Go Organic Orchestra in quintets and octets. And then the last 10 years, I would say he and I primarily performed together as a duet. Um, and up until he was, you know, his 92 years old, we were touring. We, we, there's some videos on YouTube of us playing as a duet in 1990 in 2012 i think he's 92 years old Mm. um so um yusuf was a huge influence and um yeah i mean just referring to the idea of fusion as as maybe the idea of pushing the boundaries or not really acknowledging boundaries but really acknowledging in style but thinking more about um a studiousness and curiosity and experimentation and following your intuition um open a certain kind of openness and courage to to really reach for things that's certainly what yusuf was all about i mean i worked with them for 25 years and uh we were always reaching and experimenting he was always open you know to music from other cultures but also going deeper into 20th century european music ideas working with electronics we did a lot of stuff with electronic music which is certainly reflected in the record the new record i did with benny um so he was a real inspiration that way of i would say that combination of studiousness and imagination and following having the courage to follow uh follow your intuition you know yeah Thank you. 
Yeah, so this record with Benny, what, how did it come together? Was this your first time recording with him or working with him? Or did you know well, each got, other going back? Well, yeah, we have a really interesting history. I actually was at, when I was, again, a teenager, I think it was, I don't know the exact year, but maybe also 73, when he recorded The Jewel and the Lotus. Do you know that record? I do, yeah. That was, was that yeah. that old? I was, I, for some reason, I thought it was more, it was earlier than that, but maybe it is early 70s, yeah. 75, maybe, okay. I think. Okay. I, I, 74, 75, I was in New York on a uh, program uh, through Oberlin where I was actually there studying djembe and tabla and Haitian drumming and, and arts program. Anyway, somebody I knew, I'm not sure who knew the, the engineer at the record plant, and I found out that Manfred Eicher was there producing a Benny Maupin recording that I was able to be in sit there and I was there so I was there at that recording session for the Jewel and the Lotus you know and so and it, to this day it's one of my all-time favorite records I think it's an incredible record so I don't even know if I met yeah I met them but Benny of course doesn't remember me from them but then <laughs> when I first moved to Los Angeles to work with Charles Moore in 79 we were still doing the Mandingo Griot Society but I wanted to I kind of decided to move there. One of the people I really loved his music was Benny, and I ended up starting working in Benny's band. He had a group um, in, I think, 80, 81, 82, I guess. I was performing with Benny, along with a lot of other projects. So I actually played in his band, and then we reconnected um, in 1999 when I started the Go Organic Orchestra, which I first did it in Los Angeles before I moved back here and formed the orchestra here. Mm -hmm. And I asked Benny to be part of it. And um, I started it partly because it was kind of my time to be, there was a lot of musicians who wanted to kind of learn from me and, and be, you know, were interested in what I was doing. And, uh, you know, I thought it was time for me to pass on some of the beautiful things I had learned from uh, Yusuf Latif and also working with Don Cherry and, um, you know, the elders. So um, rather than have a band, I, I had always been interested in the sort of an orchestral idea of improvisation. Um, and so I started, I made this orchestra that was sort of open to classical musicians with classical backgrounds and world music backgrounds and so-called jazz backgrounds and sort of didn't matter what instrument they played. It didn't matter what their background was. And I've been refining this now for 2009. Yeah, almost 25 years I've been refining the Go Organic Orchestra mm -hmm. and have taught musicians all over the world. I go everywhere and teach it and share it and perform. So I asked Benny, and he was like really down to be part of it, which was great to have sort of a, you know, an elder, a great, you know, I mean, we had a, flute player was 14 you know there was no boundaries so everybody was sharing and so he really led some credibility but also his knowledge you know of being part of it so he's always been part of it and then in 2003 i think yusuf and i decided to i invited yusuf to come and be a guest with the go organic orchestra and also play some bring some of his own music so we collaborated on a project so Benny, that was when Benny got to actually um, connect and actually play with Yusuf was on that. That's a record called In the Garden. Mm -hmm. It was documented. And it was great because there was three generations of sort of woodwind players from Detroit. I mean, Yusuf and then Benny, who was younger and then even younger than Benny, was Ralph Jones, who I've worked with for years in the eternal wind and in my moving pictures and we've done duet records so there's sort of three generations um and uh yeah it was a wonderful recording so just to jump to this uh, a couple of years ago i brought my moving pictures group out and and then also did the go organic orchestra um at the the um it's called the angel city jazz festival that rocco organizes okay. and benny came and was playing with the orchestra and then also 
sat in with the moving pictures. So then in 2020, Rocco was like, well, would you come back out and let's do, it's Yusuf's 100th birthday year. Let's do a tribute concert to him. And maybe would you and Benny like to play a duet? And I was like, great. So of course we didn't, I didn't go. It wasn't, nobody was, you know, they decided to make the festival virtual and just, you know, and, but I couldn't fly cause it was COVID. Mm-hmm. And so I proposed to Rocco. I said, listen, I'm going to, I will, you take the money, the flight money, give me a budget. I will create a electro acoustic, uh, symphonic tone poem for Yusuf and Benny can, I'll send it. And then Benny, you guys will go in the studio and Benny will play with it. And, um, so that's what we did. So I created all the music here, the five movements. And then what I did when it was done, Benny, he played, you know, incredibly, of course, but it was a little bit, I wanted the music to be more fused, I would say, or more Mm -hmm. integrated. So they sent me Benny's tracks and I spent, uh, you know, a couple more weeks sort of, uh, editing and moving in processing his sound. So some of the sounds on that record that <coughs> might even be him, but you might not recognize them as him, uh, but sort of integrated it. So it wasn't like, here's an electric electronic music palette. And then there's a saxophone on top. Right. I wanted it to be more integrated. So, the music has is not really doesn't have anything to do with Yusuf in a literal sense that we're playing his music or even his concepts, but it's more. But of course, he had a huge impact on me. But it's more honoring him in the sense that. I mean, I think I did thirty, twenty, or thirty records with Yusuf, and I think he must have recorded somewhere between seventy and a hundred records. And he said to me. Um, on more than one occasion, he said, with every record, I try to do something I've never done before. Mm-hmm. So this record was more in the spirit of that and his philosophy and great mysticism of of an approach to sound and uh, life and are reflecting kind of his vibrational uh, spirit an impact on us and Benny too than trying to do anything literally about him. That's why it's called the symphonic tone poem for Brother Yusuf. It's honoring him in the spirit of how he did things, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. No, so you I know what it, to, you know yeah. what it reminds me of in a way is the Miles Davis piece, He Loved Him Madly, which is a tribute to Duke mm-hmm. Ellington but doesn't sound mm-hmm. anything like Duke Ellington. Mm-hmm. That's a great... That's a really good point and a really good um, reference, actually. I, I, I love that. Yeah, because my feeling is these, these you know, these, I, I think in one way it's great, people are doing tributes, but in another way, speaking about it, how you are mentioned with that Miles tribute, um, you never saw Miles... Um, you know, you never heard Miles doing, you know, a record of the music of Duke Ellington. You never heard Yusuf Latif uh, doing um, the music of or a tribute to. It's not, the whole idea has always been to sound like yourself and project your own vision and sound, inner voice, into what you do. So this recent thing of the last 20 years of these tributes, I don't know, I, I, I'm not a big it's not for me anyway. Mm-hmm. I think, in other words, every time Yusuf played his horn, it was a tribute to um, Coleman Hawkins and Ben Webster automatically, right? Because you could <laughs> yeah. hear, if you know the history, you know that. But it's also 100% Yusuf. And every time you hear Miles, it's a tribute to Roy Eldridge and Louis Armstrong. Um, but it's 100% Miles, right? So... Um, that's the tradition. Every time you hear, you never heard Arnett Coleman doing a tribute to Charlie Parker, but every time he played, you it's a tribute to Charlie Parker. That's how I look at it. You know, I mean, every time you hear Alice Coltrane, it's a tribute to Bud Powell, but it's her a hundred percent. 
Yeah. So that's my feeling of what it means. And for me, when I play my hand drums, for example, it's a tribute to Big Black and M. Tume and Don Elias, you know, who are the people who kind of opened up creative, multidimensional hand drumming for me. But I don't sound like them, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the tradition, you know. I mean, to take it into the drum realm, you know, every time you hear Elvin Jones, it's a tribute to Philly Joe Jones and Art Blakey and ultimately to uh, Papa Joe Jones, right? But it's 100% Elvin. You hear him in one note, you know it's him. So that's my idea of it, of what a, um, of how we acknowledge and respect the elders and also to respect the creative attitude of you know, when Miles, when you mentioned that he loved him madly, well, Duke was one of these people who was pushing the boundaries and projected, trying to move his music, projected forward, um, uh, as did all of the people we're talking about, John Coltrane and Yusuf Latif and Don Cherry and Ornette, and Eric Dolphy and so on. So the way we respect them is we try to do that for ourselves. And so this record a symphonic tone poem for Brother Yusuf, it sounds like the best thing I can say about it is it's, 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 is that the music is its own prototype. It doesn't sound like anything else. And that's a successful thing for me when it's prototypical and soulful at the same time. little bit more about tell me a little bit about moving pictures because it seems like there are different players on every record so what are the commonalities of that group's music that allow you to use that name on a given record like what makes something a moving pictures album uh well i guess it's it's my the the name of um my mid-sized group musical concept you know mm-hmm. uh the way the go organic orchestra is sort of which also changes too um is sort of the outlet for my large ensemble so you know yeah i would say the only thing that's really consistent about moving pictures is that it's it's um a, a vehicle for me to project my uh you know my conceptual and compositional interests and processes at any given time, uh, you know, with the musicians who are, you know, sort of orbiting, you know, orbiting in with me at that time. Um, I try to find musicians who are what I call R&D, research and development oriented. Um, uh, It's, it's, um, and in that moving pictures is really almost like a, a research laboratory for me in another way um, to investigate different uh, and go deeper into different uh, concepts about rhythm and intervals and aesthetics and orchestration mm-hmm. and uh, like that. So, um, so it can be anything I choose it to be, I guess, in that way. Yeah. yeah. And as you said, the Go Organic Orchestra can be pretty much any size. So how do you shape that music? Like, what are your conduction methods? What kind of leader are you, you know, in that in that situation? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I mean, the biggest difference between the moving pictures and Go Organic Orchestra, besides the size, is that in moving pictures, I... I'm playing percussion and electronics and in the Go Organic Orchestra I'm conducting. 
um, I don't really use the word conduction. I know it's becoming sort of a a generic abused word, but it's actually Butch Morris's trademark um, word that's particular to what he does. But I do what I call spontaneous uh, uh, spontaneous conducting. So I would say Go Organic Orcas is a fairly um, a lot of elements to it, a lot of things to talk about it, but I would say the main three qualities are the way that I conduct spontaneously with a series of 21 hand signals, um, the score, which is uh, three pages of what I call decomposed or sort of DNA kinds of elements that are based upon interval systems. It's not Western notation. It uses what I call matrices and cosmograms um and so i can use a hand signal to there's 10 of them since i have 10 fingers and so i can guide the musicians to any one of those at any time and so we're not always always playing all 12 tones they might be based upon um a raga or they might be based upon one of a symmetric hexatonic scale or a synthetic scale but it makes it allows for me to move into different uh, melodic and harmonic areas spontaneously with the orchestra. And it's kind of um, almost the opposite of what graphic notation that uh, people use in that it doesn't say what kind of gestures to play. So, mm -hmm. for example, if somebody was playing, if I guide somebody to play in a uh, one of the pages as a triple diminished cosmogram, and so they can move through that in any way they want, so if there's somebody's background is a, you know, rock guitar player and somebody else is a, a classical violinist and another is a, a, a jazz flautist, for example, quote unquote jazz, they can all be talking to each other about the material in there, but using their own, uh, what I call phraseology, their own gestures. Um, and then at the same time, once I've cued that, I can... I can be in the dialogue, the call and response with them, with the entire orchestra, because I know this is the arena we're in, triple diminished, and so I might cue the orchestra or parts of the orchestra based upon what I'm hearing spontaneously to dialogue with them. Mm -hmm. uh, or I may even choose to go to a different matrix altogether. Um, that's the other one part of it. The other part is the rhythm concept that I use that I've developed over the decades um, that I call cyclic verticalism. And within that, uh, I've composed, I've created what I call signal rhythms and ostinatos of circularity. And without going too technical into it, they're sort of combination of the uh, Indian, North Indian idea that I studied for many years on tabla of cycles, rhythm cycles of various uh, twos and threes combined, like seven beat cycles and so on, with the African, or particularly West African, um, concept of polymetrics, um, things moving in threes, odd against even, mm -hmm. that you hear in a lot of African music. So I've combined those and made my own signal rhythms. Not every rhythm qualifies as a signal rhythm. And I use these signal rhythms over and over again in different compositional ways using what I call these asinatos of circularity, which are different, um, uh, yeah, oftentimes played by the bass player, but could be played by the orchestra. Um, that, and I think if you've heard the music, you, maybe you it makes sense what I'm talking about, I hope. Yeah. Um, so that's, so, so the orchestration, it doesn't really matter. Um, I've done, you know, concerts with uh, eight bass players. I did. A, I conducted a, a piano orchestra in uh, of a dozen pianists in Naples a couple of years ago. Uh, I have two records out with my Go Organic Guitar Orchestra. Um, the musicians, and not only is it what the instrumentation is open, but musicians from any background in any culture, cultural background can come and participate because of the way the music is open like that.
play all kinds of different percussion instruments from all over the world, but I feel like instruments express the character of the cultures that create them. And there's a certain element of decontextualization that occurs with fusion when you take the Bill laswell -E collision music mindset, you know, where you're throwing elements together to see specifically to see what happens. So how do you do that while maintaining a necessary degree of respect for the original cultural context? And I want to be clear that when I say that, I don't mean you, Adam Rudolph, a white guy, playing an instrument no. invented by non-white people. I mean, like, let's say a drum has ritual significance in, like, Bali, but you're playing one in a studio in West Orange. Like, how do you honor its meaning? Yeah, actually, that's a great question, and it's actually a very uh, deep question, I think, um, in one way. I mean, the the the, surface, the, the simplest answer is um, almost you almost cloaked it in the question itself, which is to approach, to be studious and to be respectful. Um, so, uh, you know, I lived, I studied tabla for 20 years. I lived in Ghana for a year uh, studying. Um, I spent many years studying bata and studying rumba and all these things. But to me, it's almost like more respectful to not try and recreate that music. You know, the instrument is just a vehicle, mm -hmm. you know. And you're right. I mean, it, that, that is a fascinating thing. Like, like Bedir from Morocco, right? It's with the, the frame drum. I mean, that's a miracle, right? How did that instrument, how did they decide that that instrument was what everybody liked and develop this amazing repertoire of music to play it, right? That's in, that's sort of a that's sort of a miraculous phenomenon in and of itself to me. You know, why are all these instruments made the way they are? Especially when you start talking about places like Africa and Indonesia, where people still play primarily hand drum instruments. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, you know, I can turn the question around and say, of course. You know, how do you say, uh, let's take John Coltrane. Well, he's playing an instrument that I think was invented in Paris, uh, France, by Adolf Sachs, that was, you know, invented in, to play, uh, I think, in marching band, you know, band music and, and symphonic music. So one of the miracles of what so-called jazz is that African-Americans, uh, you know, picked up these instruments, not just in New Orleans, but in Memphis and everywhere, many of them that were maybe discarded from the Civil War, bugles and, um, uh, you know, woodwind instruments and, and develop them into, to use them in a way that was so uniquely expressive of something culturally and spiritually deep in the African-American experience, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, but is that a misuse of the instrument? The instruments themselves, yes. You, I mean, I personally um, not only study about the instrument and how it was played. I can't study every instrument. You have, you have to decide intuitively how far you're going to go, you know. Uh, like I have friends who started studying bata, Afro-Cuban drumming, which I did for years. But then at some point you have to make a decision, okay, I'm going to, actually join the religion and have what they call my hands washed and learn the songs and actually learn everything that surrounds the drumming that does give it life and, and does give it meaning, mm -hmm. you know? Right. But, uh, but then, you know, then there's a point at which like I take some, like two of my hand drum mentors, um, Don Elias, well, three of them, Don Elias, who influenced me, M. Tume and Big Black. So Don Elias, is um, very grounded in Afro-Cuban drumming. He's an Afro-Cuban style drummer, but when he's playing with Miles Davis, he's not plugging in, uh, you know, uh, a, 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 a Columbia rhythm, literally into a music that isn't about that, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, the music I came up in, John Don Cherry used to say, jazz is the glue. I mean, this music, the reason I mentioned about the instruments in African-American music is that it's a syncretic music in the first place. And not only that, all musics are syncretic. When you really stop to look at it, things are just moving uh, moving so much faster now. But no instrument, yes, the bandir uh, is sort of a quintessentially Berber instrument but you know lo and behold you find the same kind of instrument in northern nigeria and in egypt in iraq and so on and so forth when you start to look at the the pedagogy of different kinds of instruments so uh clearly people were traveling across the sahara and learning music is all syncretic musicians are always curious always learning from one another always traveling um and like, wow, well, show me that. Well, I never thought to do that before, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is no such thing as pure tradition, um, but we are, we are more in the so-called jazz tradition, or um, we are more, uh, there's more um, openness in that music. Uh, that's part of what the miracle is about it. Um, so then I look at, so I go from Don Elias to another person who influenced me, M. Tume, and his teacher, his uh, Big Black, who also I studied and spent a lot of time with, and he plays hand drums in the way that uh, he learned from his brothers, which is more coming out of goombe drumming, but also out of buck dancing, which is the roots of tap dancing, mm-hmm. and out of Philly Joe Jones's and Roy Haynes's trap drumming on the hand drum. And I was already doing that. My biggest influence on hand drums, even while I was studying Afro-Cuban drumming and then went to Africa studying Afro-Haitian drumming, was Tony Williams and Elvin Jones. And even when I was a teenager, I was like, well, how could you interpret those concepts um, on hand drums, mm. you know? And why not? I mean, I'm not, you know, it's all context. I mean, like I said, I'm people play congas, uh, so there's this range of, um, so what I, I, I think about it like this, there's sort of an invocational aspect of music and there's the virtuosic aspect of music, right? Mm-hmm. And the invocational is not really, this, this is, uh, I've been reading a lot of uh, this great, um, uh, scholar, Robert Plant Armstrong, and he talks about this, um, in his books. He was a big influence on Robert Ferris Thompson. I don't know if you've read him much. I, but, um, I've read part of uh, Flash of the Spirit, which was, you know, I heard about from Greg Tate. So, yeah, exactly. So, right, yeah, that I mean, Flash of the Spirit is incredible in all of his books. Anyway, um, uh, um, I mean, he's one of the great writers. His book on tango is fantastic too. Um, so, uh, but Robert Plant Armstrong, he, anyway, it's very interesting. He talks about these idea of invocational art. He doesn't even use the word art, but that's a whole other conversation. But he works. He calls them works of effective presence. So, for example, when you have a, if you make a, a, a an alegua sculpture, it, it's its power is not in the aesthetic beauty of it, but it's in what it's invoking. So mm-hmm. yes, if you're playing bata drums in a a uh, Afro-Cuban ritual setting, which, by the way, Afro-Cuban bata drums are different than Nigerian bata drums, and in and of itself, the Afro-Cuban versions are something syncretic culturally already. So something has changed anyway. In Nigeria, the drums are made different. They use straps. They have a lot of different rhythms. It's it's but it's definitely the root of the Afro-Cuban bata. But be that as it may, when you're playing in the uh, contextual intentionality of a, um, where you're invoking certain um, energies uh, of Alegua and Oshun and Ogun and all of this, um, then, yeah, those batas have been consecrated and the intentionality of playing them is for that. Mm-hmm. But, then if Irakire is playing bata in a you know in their pop uh, jazz setting, that's cool too you know. As, but but to me there's there, the intuitive part is how deep to spend enough time to number one re- study 
something about the instrument, not just how it's played technically, but the context in which it's used and the cultural philosophy, for me, the cultural philosophy. And in fact, the cultural philosophy ends up being much more interesting and inspirational and influential on me than the music itself. Mm. In other words, the year I spent in Ghana, what I learned was that their philosophy, that it's a lived philosophy, that everything that's going on with um, drum, dance, music um, is uh, in relation to life transactions of birth, death, funerals, and so on, is uh, it's a lived philosophy. So that, over time, I realized when I lived there, I was like, wow, I could spend my entire life learning just this one particular type of drumming, Ave drumming, for example, from Ghana, that I started studying. And I did get pretty deep into it, even after I came back to the U.S., studying with the Lezepko family. But you can spend a whole lifetime, but you can learn it all, but it still has to do with this cultural context. And then, so I realized at that point, I had a revelation that what I wanted to do was understand the underlying principles of how that drumming was working. Because uh, when I lived in Ghana, you would, you know, you would travel 20 miles and they got a whole bunch of different drums that they've made out of hand, by hand, a whole different repertoire of patterns, and that's another lifetime of study. So mm-hmm. I'm a creative artist. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna move there and become that person, but <laughs> I respect what they're doing. So I study the ones that I study, and, but I'm at the same time I'm looking for what is the underlying principle. That's why I came up with this idea of signal rhythms which actually, if you trace it to the root, it comes as in the root of, I think, certainly African music, and I would post, I would speculate all music is the babanzeli, the aka, the baka, the mbuti, what are called the uh, so-called pygmies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, I read an interview with Cecil Taylor, not an interview, but a quote in one of Robert Paris Thompson's book, coincidentally, coincidentally, where Cecil Taylor said, Everything we do in this music can be traced directly back to the Mbutis, Mbuti hmm. Pygmies. This idea of uh, repeating what we call the groove, you know, the James mm-hmm. Brown, the, the, that, uh, the idea of repeating uh, what's called ostinatos, things orbiting, circling around like that. That's from, uh, they, they're the oldest culture uh, in, on the planet that does that, you know. Mm. Um, that's just one example. And the idea of polyphony. Um, they're the oldest culture that uses polyphony. So my speculation can't be proved, but that I think I wouldn't be the only one who would say that their music, certainly Robert Ferris Thompson, many people understand that their, their culture had a, is much is the oldest in, in that's intact, maybe in the world, along with the uh, Kosan, the, the Bushmen, mm-hmm. you know. But they don't use the same kind of ensemble music as the pygmies do. Yeah. Um, anyway, so this balance. So, yeah, I spent a lot of years um, studying Afro-Cuban drumming enough to know. I guess the thing is you need to study enough to know to develop more respect that, you know, the cliche, the more you know, the less you know, or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. You know, enough to know that... Um, uh, this is a lifetime of study, but I need, you know, I'm putting my energy into developing my own language on hand drums along with my own. Same thing could be said of, well, hey, I could spend a lifetime studying how to write a string quartet or, you know, traditional Western or, you know, or orchestration. I love orchestra. I love the music. But at some point, you have to... Um, put your energies and your creative thoughts into cultivating your own imagination. So I'm not a master of counterpoint, but I know I've studied enough counterpoint. I studied with Monsieur Santos for a number of years. I know enough about counterpoint to respect it and also choose to use it or not use it. Mm -hmm. So this idea is, you know, going back to uh, Yusuf Latif, who was my mentor and the first person I know to really be a kind of global-oriented musician in the 1950s when he started studying, listening to, um, and using instruments from all over the world, and rhythms from other parts of the, 
you know, different kinds of rhythms, even before Dave Brubeck. And I asked him once, I said, well, how do you, you know, how did you get interested in studying all these different music from everywhere? And he said, I knew that if I wanted to have a long-term relationship with music, I should study everything about it I could. And so people like him and John Coltrane and Don Cherry, my other mentor, this idea of studying about every kind of music, it's, it's an imperative. I mean, it's, it's like I said, if you, even if you grew up in your village somewhere and 20 miles away, they got something else going on and maybe your, your family, people have lived there for hundreds of generations. You still, when you go that 20 miles, you're like, wow, that, that, that's kind of a hip little something. Let me learn that. Well, now to me, how can you pretend that all of this music from all over the world is not there. Not only is it that you can hear it on record, but they're your peers. They're your neighbors, you know. Listen, thank you so much for talking to me, man. This has been this has been fascinating, and and you know, there's so much to you know. Th- this is exactly what I've been talking about with people: is this idea of an attitude and a creative mindset, you know, and yeah. and the right. idea that connects to that, which is that you know, that sounds are there for not for the taking, but for the use, you know, like. If you if something sounds good and you think you have an, a complementary idea, then you know borrow it. Say you do that, I'll well, do this, and we'll see what we get. You know. Yeah. Well, and even you know, put it on, borrow it. I mean, you know, Igor Stravinsky said, "Good composers borrow, great composers steal." And I think what he meant by that was that you really deal with the essence of what they're doing. You're not just grabbing a lick or something from them, but you're actually dealing with the something really um and everybody does. of course that's the point you know mm-hmm. uh the other thing i would just add to that is I, I totally agree with what you say and i would add to it that process when you can generate new processes um then your music your art can become prototypical there was a great quote from richard sarah the sculptor who said something to that you know new processes yield prototypical art so for example the process the inspiration from Yusuf was the process of how i put this music together i had never done before you know i had i had a studio here i was you know recording my percussion every time i had an idea i would record myself uh playing all kinds of percussion or keyboards and then i kind of wove it all together in the movements for this um uh you know and did it come all myself and and but but uh you know over a period of months and and wove it all together in you know work in pro tools and created these these um a symphonic tone poem thinking mm-hmm. but still thinking about you're still thinking about form you're still thinking about tension and release you're still thinking about coloration and movement all of the things that I would think about when I would write, like, for example, if I write, you know, I've written some string quartets, I'm thinking about all those same qualities, but doing it in this new way. And with all of these electronic processing that, that was some really interesting technology for me to engage. Um, so it was a new process for me of how I put the music together. And I, to me, that's why I think the music sounds unique. And um, so process is, 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 is very important. And what you're saying, too, about, you know, you know, um, you know, borrowing, being influenced, this and that and the other, this is a natural inclination to any artist who's at all curious about anything else. And it's a lifelong thing. Of course, 
you but you of course you bring it into developing your own voice and your own ideas the only limitation is your imagination right mm-hmm. and anything you can you can you know and hearing and i've always been in the attitude of of you know like oh, i don't want to listen to that because that's not jazz or that's you know so simple or that's i don't like that or i like this it's like why not have the attitude of hearing the humanity and the beauty and or fascination or interest in in everything right mm-hmm. that's the attitude that not like judging and like this is this and i like this but man then you're like it's so great because you hear you hear something in everything you know and you learn from every musician you know yeah um, yeah so uh i think that's the fusion i think the the idea of what I mean, I know fusion people talked about it as sort of a you know stylistic movement, but the, I don't think there is any music that's not fusion. You know, if you go back to like, if music making is as, as least as old as language and maybe older, you for human beings and whatever you consider, you know, Homo sapiens or whatever human, you know, where people made utterances that had some kind of uh, emotional content to it and shared it. Uh, which is a whole interesting question about the mysticism of that, then, you know, you're influenced by somebody else, right? You know, you hear the other person. You're like, okay, you know, and then you, you you know, so that's fusion. You know, what about, you know, a little band of people a million years ago and they come across another band of people and maybe they're singing in a slightly different way and you're like, you know, man, I like that. I'm going to do that. I mean, it's so, the idea of fusion and the idea of influences and growth is like so intrinsic to the idea of curiosity and inspiration on a fundamental human level that it's like it's the essence in a way. I think it's the kernel 